Hey there. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. Uh, we did make it down to South Carolina, and we're able to catch up with our kids and our two grandboys. And the most memorable, I always come away with a memorable quote from at least one of my two grandboys. The youngest just turned seven. Uh, the oldest turns nine next, or this month, January. And the youngest crawled in bed. He was our alarm clock on Christmas morning, as younger kids can be on Christmas morning. They were very excited. And he crawled up there, Reed crawled up there, and he has a different way of looking at the world. He's very creative. Uh, he crawled up in bed with me, and then he climbed almost all the way up onto Joy's pillow, so he was looking at me upside down, examining my face. Now, I know I have a face that needs to be examined, but he, he peculiarly looked for me, at me for a minute, and then he said, Peepaw, your beard looks like a volcano. <laughs> And I guess upside down, it kind of does. You know, it's sort of wispy and going like that. I'm actually growing this out so I can become more Samuel-like when we do our winter Bible study. But I thought, that kid, he just has a different way of looking at the world. I love that. We would not have that kind of memory had we not spent time in the same place with people that we love, which is my segue into the message today. We're talking about building community and how important that is in a body of Christ. So much so that I'm going to dedicate a serious portion of my preaching and teaching in 2020 toward building relationships and building discipleship-oriented community in everything that we do. It should be pervasive in every part of who we are. It should become part of our DNA at Living Water, committed to community. So that's what I'd like to cast a vision for on this first Sunday of the new year. If you would, take a quick peek at your tear-off. There are two sides to that. One side has some new information for you today. I want you to be thinking through those items as I teach today. Because I would like every single person to tear that tear-off off when we do the great living water rip-off at the end of the uh, message today. And then we're going to have you put them in that offering basket over on that back table that has the lovely snowflake-clad tablecloth on your way out today. So I just wanted to make you aware of that. Be thinking through that as I teach this morning. <clears throat> Sunday mornings are a great time at Living Water, and I look forward to them. Uh, it is one of the highlights of my week. I literally lose sleep on Saturday night because I get so excited about it and because I start awakening at different times in the night, thinking about what's going to be happening do I have point three down? Do I have the chronology to that story I'm going to share? And I've told you before that I turn that into a season of prayer rather than becoming anxious about it. It becomes a time of communion for me, looking forward to Sunday morning. So Sunday morning is a big deal for worship. And I'm grateful for all the people that I sometimes pray for on a Saturday night or an early Sunday morning, because we have a ton of people who expend a lot of time and energy 
to make sure that everything is done on a Sunday morning that allows us to participate in worship and learning at an age-appropriate level and some excellent Bible teaching at every level. So that's important, and I don't ever want to diminish Sunday mornings. Here comes the however. However, Sunday mornings are not the only time when we can get what we need for true discipleship to happen in a body of Christ. We can get information, which we almost always do. Uh, some of the teaching that I've heard from our elders in this room to my right is unsurpassed. It is so well thought out, so well researched, it's deep. And I commend them for doing a good job of teaching and invite everybody who wants to, to get good deep Bible instruction to come to this adult uh, growth encounter at 9.30. But in addition to the inspiration that we get, hopefully sometimes through preaching, and very often through the praise time, musically, I always get inspired from our music, as I did this morning, and I'm grateful for that. But there's more to discipleship and transformation than just information and inspiration. A crowd is not a community. There are certain things that you can do in a crowd that are very inspiring, that are more inspiring with a crowd than there would be in, say, a group of six or eight people. The music, for example, I think just becomes really elevated to a new level that's unsurpassed when sometimes I'll stop singing, sometimes I have to stop singing because I get choked up with emotion as I hear all the people just giving it their all in worship through music. And I love that. Uh, we had that wonderful December 22nd Christmas family celebration. And as you all started singing, Oh, come let us adore him on that last time through with no accompaniment, ooh, wow, there's something really special about that. Because you feel a connection on a larger scale, and the scope is different when you're in a corporate worship setting. And so we need that, and I love that. But community equals participation, and there are certain ways we can participate on Sunday morning that are great, but you can't do them like you can in a small group. You can participate on Sunday mornings by listening, by singing, by giving, by praying, by taking notes, by greeting one another once in a while, but those greetings have to be kind of brief. But it's not the same kind of participation as when you're asking questions of Scripture, when you're digging into God's Word at a deeper level, you're really studying it together, when you're sharing prayer requests with people, sometimes getting to know people deeply enough to be able to say, how did you do with that one struggle that we prayed about last week. Was it better for you this week? That's what you can do in a smaller group that you just don't have time to do usually on a Sunday morning. Community equals transformation. When I think about the small groups that have been a part of what God has used in my own walk in Christ, the transformation that I see happening by being connected with other people in a smaller group setting has been unsurpassed. It is an incredible situation as people speak into my life, sometimes asking tough questions. And relationships are such a big part of our transformation process in the body of Christ. Small groups build community. There's intimacy with God. Of course, we can have intimacy with God, and God can speak to you personally through the Holy Spirit, even in a song, even though there may be a hundred people singing at the same time, you can feel sometimes like God is speaking to me through these lyrics right now, right to my heart, but he's also very intimately involved in the Bible study and prayer time that we have when we're in a smaller group setting. Six, eight, 
even just five people, there can be a great intimacy with God that develops around that. And a connection with insiders, people who are already believers that you can talk about things in a way that you couldn't talk about with others who are outside the body of Christ. And yet, we can't rule out the fact that God uses small groups to influence outsiders as well. I'll tell a couple of true stories about that in just a couple of minutes. Looking back at some things that were inspiring to me about how that happens, Joy and I have seen in three different settings in three different cities how spontaneous Fritos and chili get-togethers at our house have started to prompt some get-togethers with college career-aged people. We would say to somebody on the way out of church one Sunday night, you grab Fritos, you grab chili. You grab Fritos, you grab chili. You grab a pack of grated cheese and meet us at our house in a half an hour. And they would do so, and we would start making chili and cheese and just talking. And we had no agenda, and there was such a depth that started to grow in the relationships by just chili, cheese, and Fritos. I think we could write an article about chili, cheese, and Fritos ministry. Because it really prompted something that turned into much deeper connection relationally than we ever expected to happen. That happened again in New York after we had moved and I was directing neighborhood Bible studies. There was not anything for college-aged kids in the church that we started to attend. And then when we started the chili, cheese, and Fritos craze, we started to attract some college kids. Uh, Some kids got wind of it. They were just up the road from us about 10 miles north of where we were. We were 20 miles north of Manhattan. And they started asking permission of their college to borrow the college van, and they were picking up fellow college students. I'm telling you what, folks. People show up when there's food. (laughs) We got to where we had to split up into small groups, those college kids, on Sunday mornings for Sunday school because we had 40 college students showing up on Sunday mornings because of relationships that develop outside of Sunday mornings. That's the kind of stuff that I want to just foster. If I could take a little piece of my heart out that's passionate about it, something that really gets me pumped, and be able to infuse that to each one of you apart from the cold that I've got right now. I wouldn't share that, but I would share this part of my heart that would say, I want all of us to start looking for opportunities to build relationships This year, more than we have in any previous year at Living Water, because it's the relationships that start to bleed over into what true discipleship looks like. There was an honest response from a guy that started to precipitate a need for change in my own life. This was in the church that I was pastoring before we came to Living Water. We had gotten to the end of our one hour of Bible study in Sunday school, which really turned out to be 45 minutes because everybody came late to Sunday school. And as we were wrapping up, we were just finishing, and we had a couple of good questions that were starting to erupt as a result of our study. And this guy started to have a couple of more personal questions because he was starting to ask some things that would really relate to his own personal walk with Christ and his growth. And somebody rang the buzzer. We had this old-fashioned doorbell kind of thing on the wall, and our Sunday school superintendent would look at his watch, and he would walk to the wall and go, which means time's up. (laughs) Time for us to get going into worship today. And that guy said, what just happened? And somebody else said, well, it's time for worship. We have to go now. And he goes, oh, man, we were just getting to the good stuff. And I saw genuine disappointment on this guy's face. And I thought, ooh, that should be telling me something. We have a need that this man just expressed. 
We need time in a setting other than the information and inspiration hour of our Sunday mornings so that people who have that question that that guy didn't get a chance to have answered can ask those questions. And he can have them lovingly and caringly answered as long as it takes. If it's a 15-minute response and a prayer time for him, if he's going through a struggle, we need that time together. That honest response precipitated something that lit a fire in my own heart to say, I want to start building that into our DNA at Living Water as well. Some of you were here when we had a truth project emphasis. I think it was one of the highlights, small group-wise, of our church. It was fantastic. We had a bunch of groups going simultaneously. We had prepared well for it. We enlisted a bunch of facilitators. We bought all the materials. We had people signed up to host. And it went great. And then it was done. And I'm here to tell you that as significant as that was, one and done doesn't mean consistent relation building small groups. I would like for us to see, let's take that, whatever we did in that small group situation there, and multiply it, but become consistent with that. That's my prayer for 2020. We'll have some small groups that will continue to propagate and grow and develop new leaders so that some of those small groups will spin off and start a new small group because somebody gets that in their heart to say, I'm willing to go with two or three other people and let's start another one. Discipleship is relational. It is relational. You cannot separate discipleship from relationships. They're so intertwined. Go and make what? Disciples. Jesus said that. That's a mandate to us. Biblical discipleship means biblical community, which means we need to look at where this came from. What was the initial prototype for us? Well, it starts with the Trinity, the Godhead himself. Who created the heavens and the earth? God did. And who is God? Well, he is God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Where do we see that? I want to give you some information right now, because that's part of what we do in Bible teaching so that you can see this for yourself with your own eyes, that I'm not making this up, even though the Bible never actually uses the word Trinity. It's there. The concept is there. We have captured the concept in the word Trinity because it helps us explain that. But here we see Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters at the time of creation. And then God said, let us make mankind in our image. That's a plural word. This is God speaking, and yet he's saying our, in our likeness. And then Luke 1.35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit, here we have reference to the Holy Spirit again, will come on you, speaking to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Here we have the Holy Spirit and God the Son being mentioned, both in the same verse, by an angel who was a spokesperson from God the Father. All three are present in one verse. John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. This is Jesus speaking, he's promising who? The Holy Spirit. Jesus in the flesh will be gone because he's going to ascend to be with the Father, and yet he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, I'm going to leave you with something even more uh, lasting than you have had with me on this earth. I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit and he'll be with you forever. The Holy Spirit, whom Jesus 
promised, whom the Father will send in my, and that's my parentheses there, Jesus, to let you know who's saying this, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will do what? He's going to teach you all the things and remind you of everything I've said to you. So he does the same thing for us. As we're in the midst of doing what we're doing now, the apostles teaching, as we can do in small groups as well, it's the Holy Spirit who's reminding us of all these things that Jesus has taught us, which have been captured, fortunately, in his word for us as well. And then he says this wonderful prayer. It's a two-parter, two slides. The first part says, my prayer is not for them alone, meaning not my disciples, which means I'm not just going to gather a small group of people and there's going to be a limited number of those who can believe in me. It's not just for those people. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their, the disciples' message. And then check this out. Ready for the mind-blown thing? That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Do you see the connectivity there? I am in my Father, my Father's in me. Jesus is the same God. It's triune, same in essence, but three different persons with three very different roles, and yet they completely support one another. That's our prototype. That's been in existence forever because God always has been and always will be, and he's the prototype for real community, and we get it through God. God the Father, the one from whom we get our purpose, our meaning in life. God the Son, the one and only Redeemer of mankind, and God the Holy Spirit who enlightens convicts of the sin in our lives and the need for repentance. And after we've repented, he comforts us and transforms believers into his image. God's the originator of and therefore the perfect example of true community because of his oneness of deity and plurality of persons. Isn't that amazing? That if, we, if you were to ask me, give me one good reason, just one, why we should have small group emphasis, I'd say, because God. He's the prototype. He's the one who has shown us what true community looks like, and he wants us to embody that, and he wants us to be fulfilled in having that same kind of community with one another. Some Old Testament examples of that, of that I'm going to buzz through it. Noah, how many people were in his small group? Kids, this is a good question for you. There was Noah, his wife. They had three sons. They each had wives. I heard eight. Yep, you're right. There were eight. Eight in the small group. <clears throat> Noah was the leader of a group of eight people. What did God do through that small group? Oh, my goodness. He renewed creation. <laughs> the entire creation through one small group. You think it's any accident that he did that? He purposefully did that because his heart was so grieved from all the wickedness that was so pervasive around the earth, but he saw something in Noah not that Noah was completely sin-free. He was not a perfect person, but he was a man who walked with God. He had a heart for God. So God used that one guy and his small group, his family, to renew all of creation. Moses, very practical concern there. His father-in-law, Jethro, said to Moses, Moses, you're going to do yourself in if you keep trying to mediate all these conflicts and act as the judge for every person who comes up that has something to complain about, and you have to mediate all that. You can't judge everything that's going on. You need to, to establish trained people so that they can be delegates of your authority. And so he did that. And he would organize people. He trained them, and he had judges 
over 1,000, people over 500, people over 100, over 50, and over 10. It was this principle of multiplication and delegation that shows that small groups are a good way for us to multiply ministry. We're already at the point, numerically, that it's impossible for one senior pastor to know of and adequately care for every individual, all the sheep in this flock. And I love everybody in the flock. And it kills me that I wouldn't be able to take care of every one of the needs that are there. But through small groups, some of those needs can be met by people who care for one another. I can know about it and I can pray about it, but if I can't clone myself to be in two places at once, sometimes I need other people to care for that person over there while I'm caring for this person over there. And it's been a biblical concept all this time. Jesus, the primary example of a good small group leader. How many people were in his small group? Including him, 13, 12 apostles. One of them was not such a hot dude. I know uh, Judas was kind of a hot mess. But we see that 12 men who started a movement that changed the world. We sang about it in one of those praise songs today. The church was born. All these things started to sweep across the known world and continues to impact people today. Let me give you some things that I think are very bullet point. They're just rat-a-tat-tat, but they're important. I want you to get them down. So I'm just going to get you to fill in your blanks. Committed small groups have a biblical vision. We need to know and serve one another persistently. Now that persistently is important. Because it's easy for us to do a one and done like we did with the Truth Project and then we fall apart and we're not doing those small groups anymore the way we did before. That's why I really want us to be prayerful about establishing and maintaining persistent small groups that are caring for one another. Secondly, depend on the Lord prayerfully. Prayer is at the heart of any good ongoing small group. When I think about some of the powerful prayer times that I've had in some of our small groups, I shared this story a couple of different times before, but it's still powerful. One of the early small groups that I attended way back when I first started pastoring here at Living Water, one of the persons in our group came to us and said, I am in need of prayer because I was diagnosed with something that I happen to know has a very small, slim chance of a positive prognosis. Uh, it's a very large percentage that I won't be alive in two years. So we gathered around at the end of that study that night, and we prayed for him, and we continued to pray for him. Guess what? That was over 10 years ago, and he's still just kicking it. Because God miraculously took care of his need, and I think he took care of it in part through praying, compassionate, caring people. Folks, prayer is key. Prayer will really ignite and vitalize a small group. And it's got to be part of what we are as an intentional, biblical small group together. We will meet God through His Word faithfully and expectantly. It's the study of God's Word that also needs to be a huge part of our small group get-togethers. Seek to make disciples locally and globally. As we continue to pray for people that God puts in our hearts, including missionaries that we know and that we're praying about and caring for, or the people that are in our own mission field, maybe people that we work with on a daily basis, maybe an extended family member that we got to see over the holiday and we're praying for them. We get to pray about that in our small groups as well because we're making disciples and we want to propagate this good news to other people so that hopefully God will add them to our numbers. And then we need to rest in the gospel. 
confidently and humbly. And you can be both, confident and humble. It's the gospel, the fact that we can never approach God because we're good enough, but we can approach him because of what Christ did for us. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. Not of our own good works, otherwise we boast about it. It's the gospel that we rest confidently and humbly in that's the center of small groups. So here's some benefits of participation in a small group as well. It's the best place to practice real friendship. Some of the people that I first met that I thought, I don't know about this guy. You know, he kind of rubs me the wrong way. I remember that in seminary. I, I had to do a, a project, group project, with a guy. His name was Steve. And I was kind of put off by him a little bit the first time I met him. And I thought, man, I'm going to be so glad when this small group project is over because this guy just kind of, he's like rubbing the cats for the wrong direction, you know? As it turns out, the more we worked together in that small group, the more I got to see the real Steve. The more he opened up to me, the more I got his backstory, the more I understood him. He had a quirky sense of humor. Fortunately, I don't. <laughs> and so... The two of us, we actually turned out that we kind of were a lot alike, which is probably why he rubbed me the wrong way. It turns out we became really close friends, and we started going to his house and hanging out with him, my wife and I, Joy and I. And so Steve and his wife and Joy and I actually took a trip together to another city and, and spent time to one another. We became sort of our own small group in seminary. You got to give it time. And sometimes the people that God knows that you really need in your life are going to rub you the wrong way a little bit at first. And that's okay. True community doesn't mean that everybody's exactly like us. True community is that we're learning to appreciate our differences, and then we thank God that we're not the same. Secondly, helps me apply God's Word. If I get seven people in the same room with me, I'm going to get seven different possibilities for some good interpretation of Scripture because they're going to see some things that I hadn't seen yet. And some people are going to hold me accountable and establish some guardrails so I don't slip off into some weird deep weeds interpretation. And there's a good self-correctiveness that happens with more people in a group that way. The Holy Spirit uses that. Somebody will say, well, I hear what you're saying and I can understand why you would say that, but it says in verse 27 this. And I'm oh, yep, you're right. You're right, I, yeah. I was off in the deep weeds on that one, so thank you for you know, bringing that to my attention. There's a self-correctedness that happens through the Holy Spirit and small groups who are trusting the Holy Spirit when we study God's Word together. It's a miraculous, cool thing to see happen. And when you know it's happening and you see the light bulbs going on over people's heads in small groups, it can become a thousand-watt experience. Third, small groups provide accountability, these guardrails for my walk with Christ. Joy and I have been through enough seasons in our marriage to know that we need guardrails. I like that term. Some other pastor brought it up. I can't remember which pastor I heard it from. I like that. Accountability sounds scary, but guardrails puts a positive spin on that to know it's going to keep me from steering off and getting off the trail and off the road into some dangerous territory. Small groups provide guardrails for us. It allows us to talk about things that we need to talk about to make sure that we're staying between the lines scripturally. Fourth, small groups offer support when I'm under stress, which could be much of the time for many of us. And isn't it good to know that we have some place we can go that's totally safe, 
and that they care so much about us that they will weep with us when we are weeping. They'll rejoice with us when we're rejoicing. And we have a place that we can call family. And I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads there because you've experienced it. And so I know you know what I'm talking about. It's a big deal. Fifth, helps us develop our shape. Spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personalities, experiences, all those things that God has uniquely equipped each one of us for ministry. That's a good place for us to practice that and to learn about our shape. And then it's a safe place to share your faith with other people. It happened with Biker Bob. He found Jesus in 12 weeks by studying the book of Mark. And he didn't do it because somebody with the gift of evangelism preached to him. He did it because the Holy Spirit revealed truth as he was asking questions of Scripture. The Holy Spirit did that. And Biker Bob is still a believer to this day. He lives in another state, and I'm friends with him on Facebook. Curious Mike, same situation. Very different backgrounds, white collar, blue collar, engineer, two degrees, high school education, same God, same Holy Spirit, same book of Mark. Both became believers through a small group situation. God's good. <laughs> They're different roles. This is a microcosm of the church at large in a small group. They're hosts, people who love to be the hostess with the mostest. There are brownie makers. I love brownie bakers. They're some of my favorite people in the world. I like mine with nuts. Thank you very much. <laughs> there are shepherds who have the gift of mercy showing, who will bring in people and make them feel comforted, who will cry with you, who will visit with you in the hospital and sit. And even if they say nothing, you know they care. There are the facilitators who are great question askers. They know how to bring out the right questions so that they're guiding you on the journey rather than giving you a second-hand experience. They're the hospital visitors, the child care volunteers. All these people can be a part of what God uses in a small group to help us become transformed, to become more like Him, because discipleship is relationship, and these are the relationships that help turn us into that. Final story, Skeptical Steve. I uh, connected with him through Facebook as well. I knew him Years and years ago, he was always one of the most morally upright people that I'd ever met, which in a sense reminds me a little bit of some of the Pharisees in the Bible. It's tough for somebody who thinks they're okay to know that they need Christ. And Steve knew that he was okay. He made all the right decisions. He was an ethical person, a really ethical person. But finally, when he'd gone through a couple of very difficult trials, somebody invited him to a church. And it was one of those situations on a Sunday morning, information and inspiration time, when the Holy Spirit was speaking right to his heart. And he said, I felt like the pastor had read my mail. And he was speaking right to me. And he gave his heart to Christ. And then somebody invited him to a small group. And he goes, ooh, man, I don't know. I like the Sunday morning inspiration and information stuff. This is great. But I can still blend in and sneak out before the invitation. And I'm okay with that. But this small group, I'm not, I don't know. He says, I'm not a touchy-feely kind of guy. He said, but I was afraid somebody was going to come up and put their arm around my shoulder and expect me to open up and share my feelings. <laughs> and he says, that was not for me. But I showed up. They were respectful. They gave me my space. 
They didn't force me to do anything. They called on volunteers to read. I didn't for about the first six weeks. And then when I did finally start to share, they received what I shared graciously. And I realized after about eight weeks, I was getting to really like these people. And after about 10 weeks, I was really liking the study. And after about 12 weeks, I was hooked. He said, this group became my life's blood. And I can't wait. He said, in fact, when I met with him, when I had visited with him, uh, he said, I've got to go in 10 minutes because I've got to get ready because we're hosting tonight's small group. And I thought, I knew this guy before he even knew Christ. And I've watched this guy being completely transformed. And I can see how important his small group was in that process. And it's a case in point that lets me know if I can infuse you with a passion for small groups that are transformational, I want to do that in 2020. Let's pray together. Father, you started a movement through small groups. 3,000 people joined that movement in one day after Simon Peter's speech, after the Holy Spirit came upon those people. Obviously, they needed small groups. And I'm grateful, Father, that you, in your wisdom, modeled that for us, not only in your Godhead, in the Trinity, but through our patriarchs, through Noah, through Moses, through Jesus himself, God the Son, and through every other growing, discipleship-oriented, relationally knit-together church. I pray that we will become more like that in 2020. And I pray that you will stir the hearts of people if they felt, yes, I want that, but I don't know what step to take next. I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you'll give them the impetus, that momentum to take a step of faith and put themselves out there. Take a risk as we become relationally oriented discipleship builders. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.